This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, It's Rodeo Time, with Mama Scotty and the kids. And the author, Elizabeth Scott, joins us on Author Talk. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Well, this is your second book in a series. Uh, your first one was Adventures with Mama Scotty and the Kids, and of course, now you're taking them to the rodeo. Tell us a little bit about how, in general, why you wrote the book, uh, in general, about how you created the characters. The characters in my book are uh, real twin dolls and stuffed animals that I own. I have given them all names and developed each personality by bringing them to life. I was inspired by my own personal experiences, and I thought by portraying life's ups and downs through the eyes and feelings of my characters, that it would be a good teaching tool for young children. Now, you have some things that you're really trying to teach children, some uh, virtues, Tell us some of those and and why you chose those. In today's world, uh, children do not seem to respect authority or adults. And I have uh, always uh, thought that uh, they need, uh, today's society needs to learn basic etiquette. Um, So through my books, I am teaching uh, virtues. Uh, like it's not polite to call grown-ups by their first name. Uh, you uh, say, excuse me, please, uh, if you need to interrupt uh, an adult conversation. It's uh, also, uh, it's okay to be different. And uh, each one of my books contains virtues and values, and they show the unbreakable bond of being a family, teaching manners, acceptance, and compassion for others, especially if they are different. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes there is conflict, but it's okay to be indifferent at times, but also to be kind, loving, and forgiving. So, um, and that's basically the uh, um, the focus. And, and my, my characters are really <laughs> characters. They get into mischief. Uh, they do kind things, and they have learned acceptance. So you're taking them to the Cowboy cowboy Cows, cows Ranch? Is that where they first start? Um, yes. In, 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 this, in the rodeo book, that I had, uh, they had never seen a real ranch. So Cowboy Cow is a friend of mine, and he had invited us to visit his ranch and uh the circle c ranch the circle c and it's uh, a wonderful experience that the kids um learn how cowboy cow changes a horse's shoe and um which you know a young child and uh would probably not even think about 
how that is done. But they go out uh, to one of the outbuildings where his little blacksmith shop is, and he has the, uh, um, the old hand billows that he uses with a pedal instead of an electric motor. And uh, this uh, uh, creates uh, some excitement as uh, one of the twin dolls, Katie, wants to help. And she jumped on the handle of the uh, billows and the, the soot and ashes blew all over her sister's dress and pinafore. Now, her, her twin sister, Kelly, is a neatnik. She doesn't like to get dirty. And Katie is just the opposite. She's the rascal. So, um, and that's, that's one incident. So Cowboy Cal makes him sit on the bench. And, of course, this book is filled with colorful illustrations. Yes. Uh, if I could back up. Sure. My, uh, my characters, like I said, a variety of stuffed animals. But um, there's several different sized bears. There's Murphy the Moose, uh, and I found Murphy in a gift shop way out in the country. Well, it was really a country store, and no one wanted him because one of his antlers flopped down and wouldn't stand up right. So the shopkeeper gave him to me because he was going to show it, uh, throw it out. So I brought Murphy home and, get, uh, and cleaned him up, and uh, the uh, the little bears and the dogs and the uh, bunny, the floppy-eared bunny, they have all accepted Murphy as he is, even though it at first bothered him because he was different. And Murphy well, the moose is really curious about the Texas Longhorns. Oh, yes, as you can see by the <laughs> illustration. <laughs> he gets himself oh, in big trouble. Big trouble. <laughs> so... uh my book is uh, uh, it's humorous, it te- it's a, a teaching tool, and it's uh, aimed at children from uh, the beginning readers, say, 6 to 12, or and even adults and senior adults would uh, enjoy this. And, and that's uh, how I've written this series. It's, it's aimed at uh, children of all ages. Grandmothers can read it to their grandchildren, and then uh, you know, beginning readers can uh, read it. It's simple enough language for, for you know the beginning reader to read and comprehend. Well, you have Nathan Dudley, uh, a teddy bear, a small one. Then you have Lily Iris, a Maine black bear. Yes. And then uh, Lily's got a little brother, Randy, and he wants to become a cowboy. Yes. A cowboy bear. A cowboy bear. (laughs) Maine black bears live in the Maine woods, and uh, I grew up in Maine. And uh, my first book, uh, Adventures with Mama Scotty, uh, explains how I acquired each of the kids. And uh, like I was telling about Murphy, each one of them has a tale similar. Uh, and yet, uh, there was one or two that I purchased myself, but most of them were castaways. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, and when Randy came to Texas, 
he just loved the cowboys. He knew he was going to go into Texas to be a cowboy. So, and there's, he, yes, go ahead. I was going to say, there's Benjamin. He's a gentle brown bear. And then you have four little bears from Maine. Oh, yes. <laughs> and they all got different colored coats. Red, yellow, lavender, and light blue. Yes. But you haven't named them yet. No, we couldn't think of any names, so we just call them the little bears. The little bears. <laughs> and, of course, there's Donovan and Patrick. They're twin bears. And Donovan, he's a Dallas cowboy. And Patrick's a Philadelphia Eagle. At least they think they are, right? Yeah, correct. correct. They, have, they get quite excited when the football games are on. <laughs> And then there's Freddie, he's a fuzzy brown bear, and Captain CJ, a polar bear. Wow, wow. that's, and he's a Marine. Yes, he has his dress uh, Marine uh, uniform on in this book. He does have a set of fatigues he wears also, but he's a proud Marine. His, His real name is Christopher Jacob, but he likes to be called Captain CJ. I have a grandson named CJ, so that I don't know. I guess I'll, I'll have to buy this book. <laughs> and then there's Corey. He's another small brown bear. Oh, yes. He's very curious, but he's also a, a quiet, curious bear. And his name is Corey uh, because he has green corduroy overalls on. And then there are three pets. The kids have three pets. you got Sally the dog, Paula the pony, and Arlene the armadillo. Oh, yes. Arlene, uh, as you can see in the illustrations, uh, has a red bandana and a red cowboy hat. Of course, she's from Texas. Of course, yes. Of course. Now, you're going to take him to the Houston Rodeo. Correct. Uh, The Houston Rodeo is one of the largest rodeos in uh, our country. And in Texas, it's a tradition for the uh, trail riders, um, covered wagons and all, uh, to um, make a pilgrimage to Houston from all over the state. And uh, and it's an exciting thing to see all these wagon trains come through town uh, going towards Houston. And the, like I said, they come from all directions. So um, the uh, the trail riders were camped out at Cowboy Cal's ranch, and they invited the the kids to join them on the trail ride into the rodeo. So, uh, and the uh, rodeo lasts for three weeks here in the Houston area. So this is uh, and it's you know a big event. Everybody goes to the rodeo, and it's advertised. Uh, frequently, and, and the kids had never seen the rodeo. So we thought this was an excellent time to show them uh, what the rodeo was all about. So it was a big event for the kids. Katie, the twin doll, and Murphy the moose, they get themselves in trouble, though, don't they? Oh, yes. Those are the rascals. <laughs> if there's trouble, you always know that Katie and Murphy are going to be in it. <laughs> Murphy with his antlers. He sometimes they come in very useful, and uh, sometimes they get him in trouble. <clears throat> Katie, she she's daring. She just dares to do anything. She sneaks away and uh, gets in the in the the clown's barrel during the uh, bull riding event, and uh, 
Mama Scotty didn't know that she had snuck away until she saw her <laughs> poke her head out of the barrel. So that created a little excitement. <laughs> She's competing with the the clown, right? The rodeo clown. Well, here she wants to be. Yeah. She wants to help him. Wants to help him. Yes. And of course, Corey, you know Corey, he is just struck, wonderstruck by the baby chicks. He sees them he sees them hatch. Yes, he he stands by the incubator for uh, several minutes, just watching, looking at the the whole egg, and then the crack, watching it crack, and then the little chick pecking its way out through the shell, and then it emerges. He just wow! He's just like you said, wonderstruck at that event. You would like readers to understand that we are all human with special needs. All of us have some kind of special needs. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, humans do have basic needs. Each one of us is an individual. We have different personalities, different characteristics, and our spe- special needs. We need to be. We need to be loved. We need uh, a hug every now and then, and encouragement. Uh, and we don't always get that. In in today's world, everyone is so busy earning a living that they often forget to take time out and just uh, relax and enjoy their family, give their children a hug or their, their spouse, or, or just to think about the, the neighbors next door or the lady down the street who's shut in. Uh, these people are, uh, are people, too. They have needs. And it's just uh, showing a little uh, love and compassion to others. And that and, we can all get along, right? Yes, and we can all get along. If we, uh, we might be different. We may even have a different color or a different cultural background, but we can all get along. Yes, and uh, I have always felt that way. Uh, I, my eyes do not see the color of a person's. In, nor their uh, cultural background, uh, and I have uh, had the opportunity to travel around the world, and I've been in small villages and seen people in all walks of life, and we are all the same, with the same needs, the same desires. We want a better life for our children, and uh, the the real the real people in all these foreign countries. Uh, a warm, loving, compassionable, and uh, content. The politics get in the way that causes a lot of confusion and turmoil. We could get, <laughs> and this is why I say we can all get along if we just try. My next door neighbor is from uh, what used to be Bombay, India. She's a beautiful person. So uh, and. We hosted foreign exchange students in our home when our daughter was in high school and college. So we have had uh, contact with several uh, international countries. So uh, people are people the world over. And that that is my aim or my message is to, uh, for us all, to get along peacefully, 
even though we have differences, but we can disagree agreeably in a peaceful manner. Elizabeth, tell us how to get your book. This second in a series, and it sounds like there's two more in development, and may even be three or four more. Yes, well, yes. Uh, my next one I'm working on is called "At Home with Mama Scotty and the Kids." Ah, and they they get into some real funny situations. Well, tell us how to get its rodeo time. Okay, its rodeo time is available at uh, Barnes and Nobles. It should be in their stores now, or it's available for them to stock, as well as uh, barnesandnobles.com, amazon.com, or from uh, me. I have some copies personally. Uh, they can contact me. Uh, I have a website or email is scottintex at yahoo.com. Uh, and, uh, of course, I will autograph. But uh, Barnes and Nobles and Amazon are the major um, distributors. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for being on Author Talk. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was Elizabeth Scott. She is the author of her children's book, It's Rodeo Time with Mama Scotty and the Kids. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Energy and Society Revised. The Relation Between Energy, Social Change, and Economic Development. It was written by Fred Cottrell. And his son, Robert Cottrell, joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Robert. Good morning. Good to have you on the show. Now, this is very comprehensive expose, if you will, uh, by your father over many years as a 
a professor of government and sociology. He was very interested in the relationship between energy and how the how energy impacted society. Correct? That's correct, Steve. Well, why did you uh, come to pull pull this all together? You know, why did your father write the book and then you kind of? Uh, picked up the pieces after he passed away, and here we have this magnificent work. Well, initially, in his early years, working among uh, various classes of, of workers and being exposed in his early days, living in the desert in the center of Utah. Uh, We're talking about the early 1900s. That's that's correct. He uh, lived in a little community in the that uh, uh, depended upon several different industries. The first was a farming community, which had been established by the Mormons when they, they went out to the West in the late 1800s. Uh, a mining operation uh, near Mil- Milford, Utah, where he lived, uh, that was dependent upon the railroads to move the ore from the mines uh, to a place where it could be uh, used productively, and then the the railroad itself, which was expanded into Milford, Utah, primarily to move agricultural products and uh, uh, ore uh, out of the area. So he grew up in an environment where, as a child, he was his classmates or were children of farmers, of miners, of uh, railroaders, of merchants, uh, and at the same time he was exposed to those uh, Indians who came, Paiute Indians, who came in from the reservation for provisions. So he he saw those who were uh, just barely able to eke out a living on the reservation to those who in that community were considered to be uh, pretty successful people as railroad operators and managers. He, uh, I think in that process, he became quite aware uh, that different types of lifestyle and different forms of energy that were available uh, to the people who had that lifestyle significantly impacted their ability to uh, be productive. And uh, this thesis carried on uh, all all through his schooling and through his work life. And when he started teaching at Miami University in 1930s, he started suggesting some of these thoughts uh, as being important to the development of societies. He adopted the thesis that a society's ability to grow and to become a high-energy society was dependent upon how much surplus energy it could create. In these discussions in the classroom, he got a lot of support and questions from his students. This resulted in the creation of paragraphs and theses and theme papers, and ultimately uh, these became mimeographed summaries of the discussions and ultimately became a book. And that book was first published as Energy and Society in 1955. It didn't receive a lot of uh, review or support or credit, 
uh, until the energy crises of the 1970s. And at that time, people kind of recognized that uh, uh, because of the crises that were taking place then, that this was an important subject. My father began to revise the book at that time, but he also had other interests that he was working on, and he continued to have difficulty finding a publisher who would publish it because it was such a, a complex mixture of many different disciplines. It wasn't ecology, it wasn't economy, it wasn't sociology, uh, it wasn't... Uh, chemistry or physics, it was a crossbreed of a lot of different disciplines, and that didn't fit very well into the uh, structured approach that professors took to, to teaching. So he basically had written additional chapters and had edited uh, the original chapters and finally gave up working on the book and put it in a file box and put it in a, it ended up in the uh, archives of Miami University. And my father died in 1979. Uh, we as a family knew that uh, he had made these revisions, but we, we had no idea where they were. And when uh, my wife and I were packing up and cleaning out the house to moved to retirement community last year, we found a box with part of this material in it, and after some further research, found a complete handwritten revised work in the archives at Miami University. And that triggered my brother and I to start exploring how we could finish this book out and, and uh, have it republished as a revised edition. So. We spent the last year and a half doing that, and that's resulted in the new book, Energy and Society Revised. Well, obviously, energy issues are paramount right now. Uh, a lot of uh, focus on this Copenhagen summit, bringing the whole world together to discuss uh, energy and how to best make it and how to best uh, distribute it, I guess. Your father would certainly have some, I'm sure, some strong ideas about all of this. Well, that's, that's very true. And my father's thought process was unique in that he, he was not a one-issue thinker. He not only looked at the, the process of uh, how an energy change might take place, but he was very concerned about what impacts uh, that change might have on varying groups of people, what kind of uh, uh, impact it would have on, have on different stakeholders who had an interest in that area, and uh, uh, what the energy change might have on, on government and society and so forth. And in, in the early days of development of energy systems, uh, as an example, take the development of the sailing ship. Uh, once the sailing ship was developed, uh, it was obvious that the use of wind power and water uh, didn't require a whole lot of uh, man-made energy. And, and they could start moving goods from 
not only just within a country but from one country to another but in order to do that you had to consider the interests of the farmers who produce the goods of the people who finance the ships the people who supplied all the materials to build the ships the integrity if you will of the countries where the ships would sail to and travel to and the cultures of those countries and he tries in this book to get you to see that when you enter into a situation like this there are many many decisions that have to be made but also many different interest groups that that have to be considered in the process and of course today in an international world that's an extremely complex process as we can see with the Copenhagen issues with the battle over different energy sources energy supplies how you're going to convert that energy how you're going to move that energy coal versus oil versus wind versus water power and so forth and as your father points out it also is involves government philosophy ideologies how all of that interfaces as well that really becomes very complex well he raises some points in the book that are so much on target today one of the questions he asks is what's the impact when a low energy society converts to a high energy society and what has it what happens to political control as that is expanded these are all kind of open-ended questions that he throws out to the reader why is there a local loss of autonomy when a new energy system is introduced why do functions of the state continue to expand as energy systems expand and of course we're seeing that right now with great concern over government control government regulations administrative policies and so forth yeah with this cap-and-trade possibility exactly and then he asked the question why has there been a a concentration of political power and what influence has this political power had on the legislative process of course every day we hear about some new special interest group who once the year of a congressman or a senator to support his particular interests and that that has tremendous influence on our political process today and then when you get into the whole question of military activity the use of military power and then within the use of military power how different energy sources and systems have had an impact on on how how wars are fought and how battles are fought so it's a very very far-reaching complex set of questions how did your father view the free market side of the distribution of energy how did he see that well there's a lot of discussion in the book about that but basically he says that markets really aren't free we talk about markets being free but the first time you go to introduce something in a free market you're 
in what we call a free market, you're immediately up against people and systems and uh, other controls that where a person might not be as enthused and, and as excited uh, about you bringing things into play as you are. Take something as simple as, as a wind power. Uh, as we read today about the effort to develop these wind generating systems, there's uh, an outcry from uh, people who are uh, habitat and, and uh, uh, animal lovers who can cite how many birds are killed uh, by them flying into these wind fields. And this raises a question about, well, what kind of restrictions, what kind of new design uh, do we need to keep that from happening if, if, it, if we should at all keep it from happening? Uh, <clears throat> so he used to use an expression uh, where you would discuss the uh, varying opinions and uh, positioning. And he used the expression, uh, a person's position may be dependent upon whose ox is being gored, which is kind of a graphic uh, expression. But when you talk with people who've been in on these multi-opinion conversations, they recognize right away what he was talking about. If, you, if, if the situation directly confronts your special interests, uh, you're going to have a different uh, response than if uh, the position being proposed complements your interests. He also saw a decline in the yield of surplus energy, and that really is a, a obviously a, a huge issue today. Well, it, it is a huge issue, and <clears throat> as the complexity of production of energy systems increases, the ability to produce surplus energy uh, is diminished uh, because it, it takes so much more energy to put together the environment. Let's, let's take a couple examples of this. <clears throat> if you look at the railroads today, uh, the railroads were primarily built by private industry. They owned the land. Uh, they were responsible for the road beds and the rail beds, and very little, relatively speaking, very little money has been uh, put into the railroad system to uh, maintain and approve the, the right-of-ways. Uh, whereas in the highway system, which was the interstate highway system, which was largely a product of uh, President Eisenhower's uh, recognition that, uh, from his experience in Europe, uh, looking at the Autobahn and the other superhighways, he declared that a strong highway system was part of our national should be part of our national defense effort. So when an interstate highway system uh, started to be developed in the fifties, a lot of government money money went into building new highways and continues to go into building and retaining new highways. Uh, we have uh, fuel surcharges to support that. And the consequence is, is that our highway system, which to a great extent supports the trucking industry, has been greatly subsidized during the same period of time that the railroads basically 
were being ignored. So uh, we hear the same conversation about the electrical grid system, that in order to move new uh, power sources that come from wind and, and from uh, uh, solar systems, to move that electricity that's generated, you have to be able to feed that electrical generated uh, product <clears throat> into a major grid that will take it to where it can be used. So the cost of, of getting this energy, as an example, from a wind farm in Southern California into the city of Los Angeles it becomes horrendous. And the amount of surplus energy created from that is, is tremendously diminished because you have to add the cost of transmitting it from its source into its user base. So <clears throat> the, cost of, of, the cost of getting surplus energy has increased dramatically. Robert, we appreciate you sharing uh, your father's vision. Uh, you are very, uh, you're one of your father's greatest supporters. Uh, you, you simply say it is the one of the best books written on energy. So we appreciate you being on Author Talk, and it is a very uh, comprehensive view of energy and society. And tell us how to get the book. Well, the book can be ordered. <clears throat> through uh, Author House. Order this book by phone. The phone number is one eight 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 two eight zero seven seven one five. That will take you to the Author House online bookstore. The uh, book is entitled Energy and Society uh, by Fred Cottrell. And the book number uh, that they work with is 59055. <clears throat> the book is available in both the soft cover and in a hard cover with a dust jacket. Well, Robert, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for calling. I appreciate the support that you're giving us and hope that we can get this information out to lots of folks. That was Robert Cottrell. He is the son of Fred Cottrell, the author of Energy and Society Revised, the relation between energy, social change, and economic development. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool 
What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. This book of poetry for children, the title, Humorous Poems for Children. And the poet is Dea Callen. And Dea joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dea. Hi, how are you? You believe in laughter. Yes, indeed. Especially for children, and adults need to laugh too, right? Indeed. This is a book of, of poetry just about funny stuff. Stuff that happens in life that we all say, you know... Someday we're going to look back on this and laugh, and someone said, well, why not laugh now? That's true. (laughs) Well, tell us why you took this approach. Why did you put together this book of poetry? Well, actually, what happened was um, the words just started coming into my head for no apparent reason, and a wonderful feeling of inspiration came over me. They made me laugh, and I began writing them down. And then I started sharing them with other people, and they all like them also. A lot of times, situations in life, events, embarrass us as adults. We get embarrassed. Children never hardly ever get embarrassed, do they? That's true. They just laugh and have a good time. Yeah. So so you say that this book appeals to children, but also to the inner child in all of us. So is this much more than just a child's book? Yes, um, the adults that I've read the poems to or who have read the poems also found them very funny. You know, they all told me that they enjoyed them. And we all have a sense of playfulness. I mean, people all over the world have children and they play with their children, so they still have an inner child within them. So to to, um, get a a child to take a situation that that normally would be embarrassing or shameful or they would feel guilty about, and see the humor behind it and see it in a much more lighthearted way, to me, is much better. Because humor is a universal language. I don't know anybody who doesn't like humor, no matter where you are on the planet. But often it's tough, because I was just recently at a get-together at our church, and we were sitting around a table, and one of the ladies sitting in one of the chairs fell right over backwards. <laughs> Fortunately, didn't hurt herself, but she just kind of jumped up and went, Ta-da! <laughs> You know, and everybody laughed, and, you know, it was just one of those things. I guess that's the thing to do, right? Just make yeah. fun of it. That's the only way you can sometimes deal with it. And you don't judge at the time, you know. When you're laughing at something, you're not judging the person, you know, or pointing a finger at them. Right. You know, it's just one of those silly things that happen in life. Uh, one of the things you say that laughter lifts one above judgment and not judging opens magical doors of joy yes it does that is what has happened to me when i wrote the poems i was not in a a laughter place 
And when I was writing them, that that's what happened is that the poems lifted me up into a different inner world and showed me how delightful life can be, how to look at life in a much more lighthearted way. Because of our inner experiences, that's really where we live, inside of ourselves. And when we live in a, a delightful, peaceful place within ourselves, we begin to create experiences outside which match up to how we feel and think. And so I feel humor is a very powerful tool to be able to do this. I guess that's why slapstick humor, when we watch it on in the movies or on TV, where all just kind of ridiculous things happen, and of course, People aren't getting hurt, even though if we did that to each other, we probably would get hurt, right? Yeah. But it's just so absurd, it's funny. Yes. I think it's hilarious. It's like, you know, watching one of those courtroom scenes where people are rumbling around in, in the middle of the courtroom, falling over tables and chairs. I'm always laughing at things like that, you know. But, you know, as long as nobody's really getting hurt, it, you can stand and watch and see how ridiculous it is. And you may not choose to do it, you know. you it's a, It's a good way of... Thing. You may not choose to do such a thing, but at the same time, you're not really judging the person as harshly as you would if you were thinking it was funny. Well, let's take a time out right now and have you read a portion of one of your favorites to us and kind of talk about why you wrote it and what it was based on. I guess it will be evident what it's based on. Well, this one is called Mom Won't Clean Our Frigidaire. <laughs> and I'm sure that everybody has encountered a, a refrigerator that hasn't been cleaned out, and they can be pretty dreadful. So, Mom won't clean our frigidaire. There's something, something growing there. A rotten, sunken apple core, green, moldy cheese that's fuzzy, or old, sloshy salad, soggy bread, and slimy, yucky things I dread. Potato eyes poke out the door, so now our house stinks even more. Then garbage alley city dump because there's some big moldered clump of something, something growing there because mom won't clean our frigidaire. Now in the night I hear a plink of who knows what I dare not blink. More time goes by and I can't bear that mom won't clean our frigidaire. Just last night I heard a clunk and I will stop there and let the audience read the rest of the poem. <laughs> Well, you know, that is, you know, really, that is a terrible situation when you think about the reality of it. But, but as you were reading it, all I was doing was smiling, you know. Yeah. <laughs> because it is so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, the, the words paint the pictures, and I think I could even smell something. Yes. I mean, I've seen refrigerators, you know, that they're full of black mold. It's, it can be really... Um, a pretty extreme situation, you know, and people have these reactions to it, but to be able to have humor mixed in with it, it is a wonderful thing. You say this, we are told as children that you must behave in a certain way during these events, these life events, and that sometimes is really detrimental to us. Yes, it is, because to me, there. Ultimately, there isn't any do and don't. Everyone has a different way of doing things. No two people do things the same way. And so I feel like we should have a much gentler way of looking at life and um, more, be more flexible about things. And humor helps you to do that. A friend of mine says, 
things really aren't as bad or as good 24 hours later. <laughs> yeah. We just, we, we just got to be patient, don't we, with, with life. And it even gets to the point where we don't even have to be patient. When we start to, to develop these uh, inner qualities within ourselves of, of flexibility, things don't even become an issue any longer. You know, something that somebody else would have pointed out or come uncomfortable about, eventually what we do is we don't even react to it any longer. We just understand that everybody's different. So humor, as you say, lifts us up above the judgments of others. Mm-hmm. It lifts us up because when you're laughing, you're not judging the person like the woman that fell over backwards in her chair. You're laughing, but you're not. You're yeah, not, we uh, weren't. We weren't pointing our fingers and being and mocking her at all. We were just laughing with her because she was laughing. Right. Exactly. You know, and you have a warm feeling towards people when you're laughing. It's, you're, you're, it's inclusive. It's not exclusive. Read another one for us. This one is called the cockroach. I'm sure everybody's encountered <laughs> a flying cockroach. Oh, goodness. At the top of their lungs. That's right. Mrs. Eden isn't there. She found a cockroach in her hair. When people turned around to stare, they found her running everywhere. <laughs> Attendants tried to calm her down, but how she slapped and flung around, then tugged and pulled and tore her gown, and you could hear her cross the town. Someone then reached to take it out, but all she did was scream and shout and yelled and yelled, get out, get out, flinging arms and legs about. That roach with furry feet held tight while she shook with all her might and scattered people left and right, and I will stop at that point. <laughs> oh, yes, you can visualize that because we've all had a run-in with a cockroach, right? Yes. I mean, I, I have encountered so many times where they're flying around the room and I'm running around screaming at the top <laughs> of my lungs. I remember moving uh, from the north down to Texas when my wife really encountered her first big one. And when we, <laughs> she really screamed, I thought she had hurt herself. <laughs> and when I came in, it was, you know, I mean, obviously they're ugly and, you know, I killed it and all that stuff. But it was just amazing how, and then we both, we just kind of laughed about it, you know, because <laughs> yeah. she, she was. You know, you can scream so, and run around and laugh <laughs> at the same time. Yes, laughter transforms our life and we just need a whole much, we just need much more of it. Yes, indeed. I feel that, you know, the, the laughter helps you to, to lift up your inner world. And you, you feel so differently. When you feel so differently, you don't judge yourself. You're not so harsh on yourself either. And you're not so harsh on other people. And if children can learn how to do this, then they have um, a head start in life. And as you say, you know, children just don't take themselves seriously like adults do. We seem to, we think we have to fit a certain mold, don't we? A certain, we have to look a certain way, act a certain way. Yeah. Children will, you know, they can look at something and they'll point it out for all the world to see, but they're not judging it. They're just noticing it. And, and you know, the adults become embarrassed and uncomfortable about it. And that's a, a learned uh, response rather than something that um, comes with the package. 
you can see that it's a learned response because children are not like that. And so what I would like people to think about is, well, why can't we be that way also? Be more flexible. You see things, but you don't have to, to be uncomfortable about it. And that's why children don't have stress. That's right. They're very innocent, and they just kind of roll along with what's happening and just uh, enjoy the moment. Yeah, that's it. It's all about attitudes. Yes, attitude, indeed. Well, why can't we just laugh and enjoy it then? Well, it requires reflection within ourselves. When we... um, for example, when we judge somebody else and then we say, okay, that person shouldn't be doing that. What you can do is you question, is it really wrong? Because to me, there isn't any real, there isn't any final wrong and right as much as there are uh, shades, different shades of that. And it's who you choose to be at the moment. And that person, in, in their view of life, may be doing the best they can. And so you have to allow each person to live their life. And why put the burden of judging them on yourself? Just if you can teach yourself to let go uh, emotionally and not hang on to the situation and judge it, that is such a, a wondrous experience. Why don't you read another one? This one is called Sly Spy. The landlord decided to spy in the night he'd just come on the sly. On all fours he would creep, behind bushes he'd peep. Then he met his fate by and by. In the bush was our cat, Arrowroot, who hissed at the sight of his boots. He gave her a scowl, so she spat on his jowl. Then he slapped her upon her small snoot. She struck with a furious claw, left and right across his gnarled jaw. As she reared to impress her point with the nest, then he swung his cap at her paw. was a grand and glorious fight, and would have continued all night. But they fell on the dog and expanded the fog, so now there were three in the flight. And I will stop at that point. Now, you wrote these poems quite a long time ago. Most of them, I, I wrote them um, about 23 years ago. Some of them more recently. So that, the, the, when I was writing the poems, that window that opened up while I was writing them, that window of delight and humor, gave me a vision into my future of who I was becoming. Because at the time that I wrote them, that's, I wasn't the person I am today. So it gave me an insight into how people grow spiritually, inwardly. And so that, it's been a, a, a long, uh, difficult road in some cases, but it's been also very rewarding. I'm glad I did it. Well, why don't you share a portion of one more? We have time for one more. Okay, this one's called the ping pong ball. Bailey threw a ping pong ball to see what it would do. It bonked upon his father's tooth, and then it hit his shoe. It bounced off all the hallway doors and hit the cook's buffet. It caused a splatter everywhere, leaving disarray. It pinged off all the crystal wear, and then it hit his mom. It boinked upon her cheek and knee, then bopped his cat named Tom. His mother took a broom to him. And I'll stop at that point. (laughs) 
Well, you can visualize that because ping pong balls just bounce everywhere. Yes, and who hasn't spilled things? Dale, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can order it online in it with any of the big bookshops. It's uh, available. All the online retail stores as well as yes, uh-huh. Author House. Yep, Author House. You and ha- uh, you can uh, go to my um, Author House website, com and order it there. Well, we appreciate you sharing your view of life and the importance of humor. We really appreciate it, Dea. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. That was Dea Cowan. She is a poet and has published her book of poetry called Humorous Poems for Children.